Lovely listeners of Vermont Ed Reads, welcome to another episode. It is currently the first half of April 2020, a challenging and redefining moment for all of us. One that's unsettling us in ways good and bad. Okay, mostly bad, but... But, as we all wrestle with the pandemic and how it's moving around and through our lives, I'm struck by how many of us are turning to art. We're turning to books and painting and crafting and poetry and making and books and music and cooking. Did I mention books? And it's really reaffirming for a lot of us the vital role art plays in our lives. The way in which it carries us through dark times and helps pull us toward the light. Which brings me to this episode. On today's episode, I'm joined by Vermont health educator Meg Falby, and we talk about Lori Hals Anderson's incomparable book, Speak and Shout. For those of you who are wondering, we talk in the episode about sexual assault and its aftermath. We're not graphic, but we will talk about emotional impact as it's portrayed in the books. While we're using these books as a platform to examine how educators can talk about consent, living, breathing, free, and thriving consent. This topic might be challenging for some folks, especially for survivors. We want you, as always, to put your own health first and make an informed decision about listening to the episode. Whatever you decide, we're proud of you for making it this far, and we hold a space for you to listen, to read, or paint, or craft, or sing, or speak. I'm Jeannie Phillips. I'm awfully glad you're back for another episode of Vermont Ed Reads the podcast by, with, and for Vermont educators. Let's chat. Thank you so much for joining me, Meg. Tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, thank you for having me. This is really exciting. So I have been a teacher now. I mean, this is my 18th year um, of teaching a bit of a combination of what we call family and consumer sciences. It's kind of the new age home ec. And um, my, my real focus has been on health education. So I started right out of UVM. I got my, um, my undergrad in family and consumer sciences education. Believe it or not, it exists. And I taught in both Barrytown School and Barry City School. That brought me, I was 12 years in, and then a job at U32 opened up, which was really exciting for me because I... I, I hold this school in really high regard, and I've been here now for six years. So I teach seventh and eighth grade health. I also teach high school health, and that typically is grades 10 through 12. And I also teach an eighth grade living arts class. So sewing, cooking, all that good stuff. Oh, that sounds like so much it's fun. It's such a fun class. It's such a fun class. I am really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, I follow you on Twitter, and I'm a fan. But also, um, I just think you're going to bring a lot to this conversation about these books. So welcome. I'm looking forward to it. So one of the things I like to ask guests Mm. right away is, what are you reading? What's on your bedside table? Because I'm always looking for the next best book to read. Yeah, well, I think... The the number that I came up with was 17, but I think I'm over 17. I'm one of those people, at least in the last year of my life, I've become the collector. You know how there's different types of readers? I'm the collector, and I am also a reader that has multiple books going at one time. So right now, I am, I'm reading this wonderful book called Beyond Birds and Bees. 
and Bonnie, it's by Bonnie Ruff, and she is an incredible writer who talks about her, you know, it's adventure. You know, to me, it's an adventure story. She and her husband head um, over to the Netherlands, and they bring their children with them, and she talks about just the vast difference between the American health slash sex ed class and layout versus the Dutch and it's just it's riveting and it's she's an incredible writer and there's so much to it that I go back you know I keep going back and back so I haven't the book's literally been on my bedside table for probably six months now um, and she just has dropped this this little seed of inspiration to do that someday to take my family and just go to go live in Amsterdam and go teach or heck apply for a role in and go teach there, you know, or do this amazing research of what it's like, what we're doing in America, how I'm doing it as a health educator, and what she does. And then the other one that I'm reading was actually gifted to me. It was dropped in my mailbox here by one of my colleagues at U32 called How to Break Up with Your Phone. And it hits home so hard that my own self-shame around my screen time usage makes me put it down. And then I have to process it and think about it and come back to it like two weeks later. <laughs> These both sound like books I need to add to my to-be-read pile. So yeah. thanks for that. Those, they both sound fascinating yeah. and, and useful. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So um, let's dive in. We yeah. have books to talk about. We sure do. Plural. Um, Let's just, um, I just want our listeners to know um, that uh, Speak, the original novel, which was published, I think, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, in 1999, so 21 years ago, mm. uh, I remember, I read it when it came out, and then Speak, the graphic novel, which mm. came out just a couple years ago, followed the same storyline, really the same story told in um, uh, a different f- different formats. They're both beautiful. Yeah. They're both really incredible reads. Um uh, the original speak um, was groundbreaking in that it was one of the early books to talk about um, sexual assault uh, by an acquaintance um, for young adults. And so, so many kids have read it. Um, probably so many of our listeners, our adult listeners, have also read it. Um, and I just wondered if you might introduce us to the main character in both, uh, Melinda Sordino. Sure. So Melinda's, Melinda's 14. And she is on the precipice of high school in a kind of classic eighth grade girl, the excitement of what high school is going to be like. And then she experiences the most traumatic event of her life thus far in, in, in August. And she is a character that, through both the book as well as the graphic novel, you just, I found myself just rooting so hard for her as a young woman navigating the world of, of high school. Um, she's just, it's, it's funny, the word, I think one of your, one of the questions was talking about like how I would describe her, or this is it, you know, and it's like, I thought and I thought, and I just said, she's, she's a powerhouse of a, of a human at age 14. And like the journey that Lori brings us on with her is just, I found myself, I mean, I said rooting for her, but you felt it, you know, you felt the rawness of everything that she was going through, through this insanely traumatizing event that, um, 
so many people, so many of my students, so many of my friends, family members have experienced themselves. Um, you know, as the character, as a kind of, I think of her too as like the classic high school kid, angsty. You know, she's got parents that are fighting. She's got the annoying teachers that she, that she would just, you know, what are you doing with my time, folks? This is my sacred life. I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. Um, she also experiences, you know, as, as a teacher myself, the one of, one of her relationships that really hits home is her art teacher and just this relationship that she creates with Mr. Freeman where it's a struggle because art can be a struggle and should be a struggle, but um, she finds that frustration, she kind of meets that frustration with inspiration from him and he grounds her in a really deep way. And yeah, it's, I see, I see Melinda in so many of my students. It's it's incredible, and that is in one way such a sad sad thing, but it's also so simultaneously it's invigorating to know that we as humans can we can we can get through trauma together. We can do this. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of both of the books, we know mm -hmm. something has happened to Melinda. Right. It's it's slowly the story emerges mm -hmm. through the course of each of the books. Um, and I've been thinking about it in new in a new light. Um, thinking about Melinda in the at the very beginning of the book has no friends. Well, she has sort of one friend ex. who's new mm -hmm. and oh, an right. ex friend, mm -hmm. right? But she's really isolated because of the series of events uh, and the sort of negative publicity she's gotten. Um, because of her actions, and um, we're trying not to give spoilers, folks. But um, you know that she she's feeling really alienated. And um, recently, there was an article in the Atlantic that really hit home for me about the importance of friendships mm -hmm. uh, in early adolescence. Platonic love, and and just why they're so crucial to the well-being of young people. And I think as adults, we can look and say, "Oh, you're gonna be fine." Mm -hmm. You know, who needs friends? You're fine. Mm -hmm. But actually kids really need friends and so she's had this traumatic experience this traumatic physical experience right. emotional experience and then it's compounded by the trauma of feeling completely alienated and unseen in her school isolated completely isolated mm. yeah and so um and so her reaction one of them i just i'm going to turn to page 81 in my book is related to the title mm -hmm. um, this graphic novel is just Gorgeous, and I'll, I'll um, put a picture of this page in, but um, Melinda says, It's getting harder to talk. My throat is always sore. My lips raw like I have some kind of spastic laryngitis. I know I'm messed up. I want to confess everything, hand over the guilt and mistake and anger to someone else. There is a beast in my gut scraping away at the inside of my ribs. And then on 141 in the graphic novel, it says, the whole point of not talking about it, of silencing the memory, is to make it go away. It won't. I'll need brain surgery to cut it out. Maybe I should wait until David Petrakis is a doctor and let him do it. That connects us very much to the title, Speak, mm -hmm. because one thing that um, Melinda is not doing 
is talking, talking about it or talking much at all. I wonder if you, you said you see Melinda in some of your students, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about her silence. I mean, it's so powerful. <laughs> um, I think the silence itself represents fear and shame and self-doubt and judgment. I think um, as a survivor, she is, I mean, I think, I think she maybe uses in her, ma in her mind a, vi a victimization. She's been victimized, but really what we see is she survived this. And I think she uses, she uses her silence as power because without speaking, without speaking, people don't know her story. Therefore, people can't turn and blame her. You know, there's so much shame and internal dialogue when one is physically, emotionally, mentally taken advantage of especially by someone she quote unquote thought she trusted and certainly looked up to and at, you know, just adored as an older person. And, you know, I found it so interesting throughout the book who she elected to speak to and what she elected to say and how she was very selective in, in those words. Um, There, yeah, there's a lot yeah, going on, and, and, and she's reliving her trauma daily in school mm -hmm. um, because of the way she reacted during the sexual assault. Kids got in trouble, exactly. uh, and so people are heaping blame and shame and guilt on her. They ridicule her in school, um, and then she also has to encounter her rapist at school on the regular. And so um, in the graphic novel on page 148 through 151, okay. I think is one of the um, times she encounters him and none of the adults even recognize it. Do you wanna share anything from those pages? So I'm gonna read. Heather has another modeling job, so I told her I'd hang the posters I made for her. Heather said that people need to see me doing, quote, normal things around the school so I don't make them nervous. And in the graphic novel, the artist just shows Andy's face and his breath on her neck, and he says the words, fresh meat. And on page 149, in, in large white lettering, it just says, it found me. Like he's back. How did, he f how did he find me? I thought this was just a figment of my imagination. It was a one-time event that I am burying so deep inside my soul, and now he's here. He's in the hallways of my school, you know, a place where I'm supposed to be safe and supported and taken care of. So powerful. Knowing, too, Right, that in a building of over a thousand students, any any high school, it could be Vermont, it could be California, that there are students who have been victimized, there are students who are in fact survivors, that this very thing happens every day. They're sitting next to them in math class, they're in their art class, they're in their PE class, their locker is four doors down. I think one of the reasons this book, Shout, um, the original, was so um, earth shattering in the young adult literature world was because we still have this notion that a rapist is a dirty old man hiding in a dark alley. 
And here in this book, the person who's committed this sexual assault, Andy, is a really popular senior in high school, right? Like girls want to date him. Uh, He's like the life of a party. (laughs) Teachers admire him. And so Melinda feels really um, invisible Mm -hmm. in her experience, in her lived experience, and also in her whole self. Because she's not popular. As her friend says, you got to look normal. Nobody knows her story. And she's not popular. She's an outcast. She dresses in baggy clothes. She's trying to hide herself. She bites her lips, her poor lips, those raw lips. Yeah. Grabbing onto anything so that she doesn't have to speak. Yeah. You know? And so I wondered about, Mm. you know, in the work that you do. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts for educators about how they might spot trauma in their students? How do they even recognize, especially a Melinda who's trying so hard to fade into the background? Yeah. So I'm going to back up a little bit and just to say, you know, so I've been in this gig for 18 years. Education, you know, the rise and the fall of what's trendy, what's hot has come and gone. And I think that I want to give a major shout out to Vermont as a whole state, but certainly, you know, my experience at U32, I've only been here for six years, but in the last five, I would say we've really honored the fact that a child is a whole child, right? That a student is whole, and that doesn't just mean math scores and, um, you know, star 360 scores, but that when these humans enter this building, they're coming from a home, they're coming from a family, they're coming from an online life, right? An online facade. And I really honor the work that we've been doing around social and emotional learning. And that, it, it, for me, it's, it's, it was so validating and it's so solidifying in the work that I do in a health education class because that's what health education is. Health ed is social and emotional learning you know, with some content thrown in, um, certainly. But so the fact that I live in a community and teach in a community where we're honoring that and saying algebra two scores are not gonna increase until we talk to these kids about their mental health, right? We're not gonna have kids reaching for AP classes or we're not gonna have kids passing, you know, college prep classes if you know, 17 hours a day out of 24, heck, 21 hours out of 24, they are wrapped around, they're fully engaged in how many likes they just got on their Instagram posts, right? Why that person left them unread on Snapchat, right? They're gonna, they could come into my, they come into my space, you know, and they come in and, you know, maybe I'm playing music or we'll have like an RP circle prompt that's kind of funny or I'll, I'll rip a joke or something. That learning objective at the bottom of my board, where it's the I can statement, they're they're not they're not buying into that. Even in my class, you know, I'm not trying to make myself sound special, but when that student is fully engulfed in reliving trauma or processing trauma or dealing with trauma from parents or the trauma that their parents have gone through, learning doesn't happen, right? So you have to say, listen, learning objectives. I see you, I respect you, I know that this is my occupation, this is why I'm getting paid, but until you say, we're gonna focus on who we are as humans first, 
you know, the importance of, you know, to get back to the question of how you, how you connect with these students that are our Melinda's, you know, and are our Michael's and are our everyone in between. You get to know your kids, you know, and that is for some of us easier just based on our personalities. Um, but I think that, you know, w even watching and working in a high school with physics teachers and art teachers and phys ed teachers, we're really supported in the work we've done at U32 to create restorative practice circles, right? Where we start every class. I start every TA, I start every class. It doesn't need to be formal. You know, yesterday with my middle schoolers, it was, what's your favorite flavor ice cream, <laughs> right? And then like I could, I try to write them down to keep track of them, not their answers, but okay, I did ice cream on Wednesday. So on Thursday, I'm gonna ask them one of their insecurities, mm -hmm. you know? And they always have the right to pass, right? But it's amazing, once you start, you start off with the ice cream ones, right? You start off with nice and easy, mild flavored salsa, right? And then you can get yourself up to questions that really can uncover some of the things these kids are going through. So what I'm hearing from you, Meg, and mm -hmm. I, I really wanna check, yeah. is that it's not about spotting individual trauma, mm -hmm. it's about um, creating spaces that are trauma-informed that um, take into account the lived experiences, the emotions, the whole child, um, and all of our students, and that welcomes their whole selves in and creates levels of support, sort of safety net structures mm -hmm. through relationships. That's it all about relationships. What's interesting to me is that um, you sort of mentioned without those relationships, without that emotional support, kids aren't gonna learn. And um, throughout the graphic novel, uh, Melinda's report card shows up in various iterations, and I'm on page 251, mm -hmm. and it says, my report card, student name Melinda Sordino, grade nine, social life, F, <laughs> lunch, D, clothes, F, Spanish, D, algebra, F, Social studies F, biology D plus, English D plus, gym D plus, art A. And there's so much of what you just said there. A, like for her, at the top of her list is really social life, lunch, and clothes. Right. I suspect that's for a lot of our adolescents, Abs right? Absolutely. And then at the bottom, the one class she has an A in, the one thing is art. And yeah. she has this relationship with her art teacher, yeah. this really positive she feels seen by him. She feels, she doesn't tell him her story. He has no idea that she's been sexually assaulted. But he engages her on who she is on the inside a little bit. I think one of the connections with Mr. Freeman, her art teacher, is the fact that she sees him as a human. I think that she creates, they have created this safe relationship because she sees him as not just a teacher who comes in at eight in the morning and checks out at three. He's creating his own art in front of the kids. He's also ruining his own art in front of the kids, going through the whole process. And I think that's huge. Mm -hmm. I think when we as educators, with boundaries, clear lines and boundaries that we're still the teachers, but when we as teachers can talk about being human and what that looks like and feels like, before we get to our learning objectives, you've, you've got them, you've got your audience because when they respect you and they know that you're human, 
they see it in themselves, you know, yeah. and then the learning happens. Yeah. It's, 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 it's authentic learning because when you're authentic with your kids, they, they're like, they're like dogs, right? They know when we BS, they know when we're trying to crank through a lesson really quick because we want to check off the box because we need to get the proficiency in IC because we did, right? When you step back, it's like, I want to do another circle. Let's do another circle. Yeah. You know? I don't actually want to get to that. Or you know what, you guys? We're not going to get to this today. Yeah. We're going to hold off until next class. Invite in the f- full humanity that's, of ourselves and our it. students. That's it. It occurs to me, too, that there are two things happening for Melinda in both the graphic novel and the original mm-hmm. novel. Um, two barriers um, that are getting in the way for her to talk about her assault with a friend, with her parents, with a a trusted adult. And one is, and I'm curious about you and your expertise around this. One is, um, I'm wondering if a lack of of, uh, quality sexual education, sex ed, is getting in the way of her even being able to talk about to have the language to talk about what happened to her. And then I'm also really um, interested in um, when, if, how we talk about consent yeah. in schools or if we, with our own personal children or with the, the children we're entrusted with in our settings as educators. So mm-hmm. I wondered if you wanted to speak to either or both of those. Sure. I'll speak to both of them and start with the first one. Did you notice what class was missing on her report card? <laughs> yeah, there's right? no health. There's, there's no, no health. Yeah. Um, and I won't. I won't get on my my soapbox, and I won't be the squeaky wheel that I have been for 17 plus years. But I think that having a space and an, and a trained, certified professional, just like our English and our math teachers, it's very important to have health educators from pre-K through graduation, because. You know, I'm biased, I, and I understand this, but there's, n- I believe there's no other space in a student's day where you talk about, you're just talking about life the whole time. You're talking about real life scenarios. You're using case studies. You're talking about experiences that they've maybe previously already had or they will have because life in a body encompasses all of health education. It just does. And so, you know, I say I say the word pre-K, but I'll tell you as a parent, as a mom to a three-and-a-half-year-old and a six-and-a-half-year-old, the conversation around consent can never happen too early, ever. And I think, and I try to, I frame it as, I call it everyday consent, right? So if I want to swig off of your water bottle, I'm not just going to grab your water bottle. I'm going to say, hey, Jeannie, can I have a sip of your water? And Jeannie's going to say, Meg, no, it's, it's cold season. And I'm going to respect your answer. Just as if I wanted to copy your math homework and you say no. This concept, and I know I'm, someone has, before me has said these words, but the term that I try to live by, that I've taught my children and that I teach my students is ask first and respect the answer. Mm. And you can take that, you take that into everyday life Right? And around this idea of consent that there's two people or more people figuring out what works for you and doesn't work for you. And 
I think most of us, and I don't want to bring gender that much into it, but I think a lot of young women and, and, and women as a whole, girls, are yesing. They're saying yes when they truly don't maybe, you know, I don't want to take on um, writing the front page of the newspaper. I had too much going on with my other classes, but you know what? I'm going to say yes because I don't want to make too much work for other people. I'm going to say yes so that I don't let anyone down. You know, regular listeners of this podcast uh, and people who know me will not be surprised that I'm going to bring up uh, compliance culture. Mm. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, and I am not guilt-free in this, I've been reflecting a lot on my um, years as an educator and as a parent and thinking about the times where for convenience or efficiency, I just needed my son or my students to comply. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about how the kind of persuasion, uh, the like pushing for, oh, please just do this, it will be easier for all of us, is actually teaching the opposite of consent. And I'm wondering how often in schools we are unteaching consent Mm -hmm. in the way that we force, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. certain behaviors or decisions on our students. And usually it's about time. We feel rushed, like we have to do a bunch of things, and we just don't have time for you to get there on your own time. Or it's about um, convenience and this notion that um, my classroom, I think I thought this as a new educator, that my classroom should look compliant. Right. And so I've really just been thinking about how compliance gets in the way of things. It gets in the way of self-direction, but it also gets in the way of, like, understanding that my body is my body and I get to consent or not. Absolutely. And that other people's bodies are their bodies and they get to consent or not. Even as early as, as, as two days on the planet. Yeah. You know, talking to our students and, and, and modeling this as well. I think, um, it's really important that body sovereignty is taught as soon as they can, you know, as soon as they're out of the womb, because when we start to, and there's been a lot of press on this, you know, this idea of respecting the fact that, you know, little Mira doesn't need to go give grandma, grandpa, uncle, auntie a hug if she doesn't want to. And that as the parent of this toddler, preschooler, I need to ensure that they know that she has body sovereignty. And I'll tell you, <laughs> just last night, my six-and-a-half-year-old son, when I asked him, I snuggled him. You know, we read. I sang some songs. I talked him in. I asked him, can I give you a kiss? And he said, no, thanks. And then my heart broke, and I cried on the inside, and I gave him a hug instead. He said, hugs and handholds is it. That's all I want now. And, I, and I've got to talk the talk and walk the walk, you know? Yeah, it's got to happen. I wondered, Meg, if you would share with us any resources or, or ideas you have about teaching consent, especially to, say, middle schoolers. And I'm really yeah. thinking um, grades, say, 4 to 12. Absolutely. So I was lucky enough, I can't tell you how many years ago it was, probably 8 or 9, and I was asked to be part of what they're calling the Vermont Consent Campaign. I wasn't one of the creators, but I was an educator that was asked to look over this future um, curriculum that could be used. 
And so since then, I would say over the last eight, nine years, I've, I've utilized this resource and we'll, we'll get it on your website. And it's literally called the Vermont Consent Campaign. It was created by the Network uh, Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. And one of the pieces that I've used in seventh grade, I, in Barry, I, I think I was using it also in, with my fifth and sixth graders, uh, maybe not as explicitly, but the fact that consent, whether you're talking, you know, if you're piggybacking um, a puberty lesson, right, you've gone through the basics of hygiene and body growth and development, right, you've kind of checked that box, I would always move into just healthy relationships, friendships, parent relationships, quote unquote, dating relationships at that age. And um, one of the definitions um, on the handout that I've given to my students for years now is just the, their, their definition of consent. It means, quote, at the time of the act, there are words and physical actions indicating that everyone freely agrees and really wants to do the same thing. Checking for consent is a process that each person needs to keep doing. And so, you know, bring it back to the water bottle example, right? If you say no on Monday, I might on Tuesday say, Jeannie, how about that water now? I'm still really thirsty. In which I'm going to assume Jeannie's going to say, hey, Meg, it's time for you to get a water bottle. Do you want me to show you where I got mine? And teaching the fact that, yes, people can change their minds at any time. And that just because consent, let's say you did say yes on Wednesday, doesn't mean on Thursday I get to take a swig of your water bottle without asking. If I handed you my water <laughs> bottle right now, Meg. Yes. I don't know where it is. But if I handed it to you and mm -hmm. then as you were putting it to your lips, yeah. I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. Didn't you tell me you had a cold? And I took it back? Yes. Is that consensual? Of course it's not, because as humans, whether you are one year old or 112 years old, you have the human right to change your mind at any time. And one of the things that the Vermont Consent Campaign does so beautifully is they, they basically lay out these five components, and they say that before you engage in any type of sexual activity, right? So let's fast forward ourselves into like a seventh, eighth grade middle school health class or even my high school class. I use the same handout, whether they're 12 or they're 18. And before you engage in this activity, you have to have your partner's consent. And the, the five pieces are sexual consent can only be freely given, keyword freely given, if number one, there's a sufficient balance of power in the relationship. And that brings in the age of consent, right? So we talk about that. We dissect, you know, the age is 16. However, in the state of Vermont, there is, I call it the high school clause. I could be making that up. But if both partners are between the ages of 15 and 18, they can legally consent to any type of sexual activity. The second piece is that both people, and whenever I teach this, I always, I ask my students to envision a middle school relationship or even like a freshman relationship, okay? Sexual consent can only be free, give, freely given if both people are aware of the consequences of sexual activity, both positive and negative, and they know what will happen next. Meaning there's been decisions around protection. There's been decisions around birth control if someone has a uterus. There's been conversation about what type of touch is okay. And 
both people understand what it means for them to be in a relationship together. And gosh, isn't that really hard to think about a 14-year-old having these conversations? Mm. And what is the difference between a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old mentally, emotionally, right? Developmentally. Developmentally, yeah. you know? The third piece, it's, oh, it's safe to say no. Consent can only be freely given if it's safe to say no. If in the back of anyone's head, there's that little voice that creeps in and says, oh, but they're going to they're gonna post this. They're going to say something on a group chat about my body. Or they're going to tease me. Or they're going to put pressure on me. Well, everyone's doing it. Come on. I told you I loved you, right? Any of those, ha they have to be safe to say no. Number four, if you say yes, just like your example, you can change your mind at any time. You could be intimate. You could be sexually very, very intimate with a person. And your internal workings, that gut of like, mm, this isn't right. I have to stop. Your partner has to honor that, right? Because when you're in a session, when, when you're in such an intimate setting with another human, nobody wants to be with another human that doesn't want to be there. I'd like to think that. I want to have great faith in humanity. I'm the mother of a son, um, and uh, I, I and a feminist, right? And sure. so I have um, spent a lot of time in my 20 now years of motherhood thinking about the kind of son I want to raise and the, my values. And um, so we've talked a lot in the past. He's all grown now. He probably would be mortified to hear me talk about this, but <laughs> about um, enthusiastic consent. Absolutely. Uh, the importance of enthusiastic consent. And one of the things I've been thinking about, and a friend drew to my attention, and I'll put a link in the transcript, is a TED Talk about how we talk, the gendered way in which we talk about sex with our children. Sure. There is a tendency to talk about sex to boys in a way that it's about like, oh, of course you're going to want to do this. It's going to be fun. Uh, but don't, um, you know, but watch out. And then we talk to girls about it as if it's not going to be fun, right? Pleasure. And so I think that ignores both various kinds of masculinity and femininity, right? And so the fact that girls already are given a message that it's probably not going to be fun or that you shouldn't have fun or that you, it's you're a slut if it's you have hurt. fun. It's going to hurt. You're going to get pregnant and you're going to get chlamydia. Right, <laughs> that it's dangerous for yes. you and that it might not be fun. I think also muddies the water for experiences of like, was I raped? I had never expected it to be fun, right? That internal gut feeling you're talking about of like, this doesn't feel right. Mm. I think we often give girls the message that it's not supposed to feel right. And so I'll put a video on that, yeah. of a TED Talk about that, because I think it's a really important concept to think about the nuanced ways in which we gender sexual experiences and and talk about it differently or and not even we but the media the way the, the the stories that are told widespread about who gets to have fun mm -hmm. who doesn't i think muddy the waters for consent just like our lack of understanding of the bits and parts and That's the it. like That's whole it. picture of sex ed and i so to come back to full circle to this this role of alcohol Yes, right? Talking please. about muddying the water, right? Um, and in fact, that fifth piece, that fifth component in that, that the Vermont Consent Campaign identifies is that the only way sexual consent can be freely given is if both parties, all parties, 
are, are sober. not under the influence of anything, yes. right? Yeah. If someone is drunk, if someone is high, if someone has popped some pills, that prefrontal cortex of decision-making, is it's not kicked in, right? Um, in particular with alcohol. And so with Melinda, you know, s- s- chugging down those three beers of which she admitted to hating the taste, right? But she knew, I'm sure right after that first one went down, she felt the effect of, oh, well, this is a little freeing. Mm-hmm. I feel kind of good. Less awkward. I'm not awkward in my skin. And, you know, there's a question for the high school component of the youth risk behavior survey that asks students what percentage of them had been under the influence um, of alcohol or drugs during their last sexual experience. And I'm going to have to go on and get the exact number. But it's it's there. It's staggering. It's it's. I wouldn't say staggering, but it's a really good place to, to jumpstart a conversation with students, right? And one of my students, this is years ago, said the words liquid courage. And I said, tell me more about that, you know, without using uh, <laughs> personal stories, right? Yeah. And he said, well, I think we're all just really awkward, Meg. And I think that anything that we can do to just kind of loosen up and also, this is pretty poignant, anything that we can do to help support the bad decisions that we make later in the night, we'll take, right? So this crazy concept of this hookup culture and this like one night thing of like, I'm gonna get wasted and I'm gonna hook up with that rando who's in my you know chem lab but I'm gonna go to that crutch of alcohol and say, oh, I was so wasted. Oh my, like, you know, when the, when the gossip mill starts, did you work up with, you know? Oh, I don't even remember, I was so wasted. Yeah. It's, it's what some of these students are turning to as like an excuse. Now for Melinda, you know, I think she was using that liquid as a way to just feel quote unquote normal or like okay for a minute. Like she fit in. Like she fit in. I think the bigger conversation we have to have with our youth is alcohol and the American culture and what it has done and how it just is, it's like bread and butter, right? You go to a party, you eat food and you drink. Any adult party, think, you know, take the, take the adolescents out of the picture. Look at our adult culture. And think about how hard it is. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but how incredibly challenging it is, even as a level-headed adult, to say the word no thank you after someone's offered you a glass of wine at a dinner party. Yeah. Oh, you're not drinking? Oh, what's wrong? Oh, are you pregnant? Oh, what did... And I'm like a well-adjusted... I'm a health teacher. No, I'm all set, thanks. I'm yeah. not interested. And I'm practicing like interpersonal communication. I'm practicing setting boundaries. What if I was 14-year-old Melinda, right? Yeah. Like, would it be as easy? Of course it wouldn't. But we don't accept no. Right. As a culture, we hate being turned down. Well, and it comes back <laughs> to um, sort of, and I think this leads to our next question sure. related to the book, but this expectations of who we are. I, I was a nerdy high school kid who didn't drink in high school, and so I had to live with labels like prude, mm-hmm. right? Like. Sure. Um, and so I, I imagine that probably isn't the word kids use nowadays. Oh, they but use that word. 
But sure. there you get labeled sure. when you say no thank you. Exactly. Right? And probably as an adult too, kill joy. Kill joy. <laughs> right? Buzzkill. Um, and so that also makes me think about, um, you know, we, we talked about Andy Evans. Yes. Our rapist in the book. Um, he's really uh, projects one kind of masculinity, mm-hmm. sort of a dominant kind, a kind we think about a lot. Certainly. But David Petrakis um, offers this much different version of masculinity, and it's quite this contrast. And I know that you run a, a, a group for boys to talk about masculinity, and mm-hmm. I just wanted to invite you to talk more about that because I don't want to... I want us to really think about both masculinity and fem- masculinity and femininity as um, a continuum, Absolutely. and not even as mutually exclusive, but as as many ways you can be in the world. And yeah. So I want to invite your expertise. Yeah, it's really it's it's um, it's in its first year. Um, this group is called Nuts and Bolts. I'm going to mm-hmm. give a shout out to my loving partner and husband for coming up with that creative name. <laughs> Um, and it really came from, it originally came from Teen Health Week that happened back in 2018. I think my intention was to have it as an annual thing. One of the offerings in uh, the sexual health day, so five days in the week, each day is dedicated to a different realm of health. And one of my former colleagues from here said, hey Meg, during that callback time, why don't we offer like a... <laughs> kind of just for gals, just for guys. And I think we had a thing like non-binary pals, you know, just to ensure that we're inclusive of everyone. Um, But to honor a space with an adult that you can just talk about free, you know, freely what's going on in the world of being a girl, or in this case, being a boy and what masculinity means. So I let some time pass. It was an incredible response. We had probably 25 or 30 boys sign up for grants offering and in my work that I've done more recently on porn literacy and we haven't even brought the word sexual explicit media in yet but maybe we'll get there in reading a lot of Peggy Orenstein's work whether it was girls and sex I do have boys and sex on my to read list I want to jump right into it but I'm going to honor my other my other books I even met her total total girl fangirl I mean So through reading a lot of Peggy's work through this Teen Health Week, I, in my summer brain, started to think, we're losing the boys. I'm losing the boys. We need to get the boys. We need the boys. And we need to make a space that we can talk about it all. And to be, to be honest, the, the layout that I created for this group, which meets twice a month, so it's uh, the first and third um, Friday of the month during callbacks, so it's a 45-minute band of time. I went into it with this with like great detail, and I reached out to some of my amazing Twitter folks that are out in Chicago and California that are doing the same very work, just to not reinvent the wheel here. But when, when the rubber actually met the road and I started advertising it to say, hey, it's a callback with Meg, Right, Meg, our female identified health teacher, is going to run a masculinity group. I reached out to my male teaching partner, um, and I started to reach out to some of my male colleagues and said, hey, I'm thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if I can facilitate a group? You know, I will ultimately be the fly on the wall, and a group of young men can create a Q&A session with males in the building to talk about what it's like to be a man 
and to talk about what masculinity means to them. I love this so much. How's it going? It, it's fluid, right? So like one week I could have eight kids and the next week I could have 20. And it's always, it's this open invitation to stay. Like if it works in your schedule, you know, with your callback schedule, come in. If you're not feeling the vibe within the first five minutes, then you're always free to leave. You know, it's just that kind of, this is, you are in control of whether or not you want to be here or not. And so one of the first times we got two really amazing colleagues here at U32, um, J.B. Hilferty and Nick Holquist. So J.B. teaches middle school and uh, social studies, and Nick is an English teacher at the high school level. And they created these questions. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I prepped this. I prepped them to say, if you had free reign and were able to ask a group of U32 teachers, coaches, staff members, anything about masculinity and about being a man, what would you ask them? So I created this Google Doc, sent it to the boys, and then I wouldn't say that they all wrote back. They certainly didn't. But it was really interesting to see what types of boys took the lead, you know, and questions like, what were some of the stereotypes that you grew up with about being a man, right? Um, how has how has your how has life changed from being, you know, an elementary school boy to a high school young man to in this case with both of our first interviewees were, um, you know, their dads. They talked about being a dad. They talked about getting married and how how things changed and shift for him, for them as they kind of started to put on different hats. Um, and it was so powerful to just watch the boy. They were so engaged. They were, you could hear a pin drop, but the fact that there's, it's such a wide range of boys. You know, you've got boys that are acting. You've got boys that are doing hip hop classes. You have boys that are playing football. You have boys that identify as gay. This yeah. is bringing me such yeah. joy. Yeah. yeah, it's really awesome. There's nothing wrong with masculinity, right? Because there's so much healthy masculinity out there and we're not trying to take it from you. <laughs> what we're trying to really touch upon is the fact that you are regularly inundated with toxic masculinity from our society. And heck, maybe from our school systems and maybe from your parents and maybe from the NFL, right? <laughs> so let's take a space to talk about what healthy masculinity can look like. You are a wealth of expertise and resources, <laughs> and I know you've got a ton of things, uh, listeners, that Meg has provided this huge list of um, things we're going to put in the transcript so you can follow up and think about how this impacts your work with students, whether you're a health educator or not, um, or whether it's about your relationship with your, your own children. Children, absolutely. Um, one last question sure. I want to ask you um, before I touch on Shout, which we haven't discussed at all yet, is how would you use speak, either the graphic novel or the regular novel in the classroom? How might you right. use it? So the, the, the beauty of this is that it is used in our ninth grade uh, English classes. Students have a choice. And um, the way that I was involved in this is that the English teachers invited me in. And that was one of the first times I had ever... Um, worked collaboratively kind of outside of my health silo, if you will. And, you know, we didn't really dig into the book a lot. Mm. You know, Jeannie, we just, they asked me to come in and really unpack consent. 
because at least in this school, most high school students are they're, they're in their sophomore year when they take health, sophomore or junior year. And so having the opportunity to go in and talk to a group of freshmen about Melinda's story and Melinda's rape and you know the lack there of consent and like I had said, the five components that we must have and the age of consent, it just was really, it was really powerful. Yeah. And I think it's really great for our students to see that there's so much overlap with so many of our subjects. You know, like I'm in my English class and I'm reading this book, but oh, hey, that's Mel, that's Meg, she's the health teacher. Yeah. Wow, so, and I brought it up um, separately in my own high school class when we go through just the basics of healthy relationships and covering consent. I'm saying, you know, how many of you in ninth grade, you know, in your humanities class read, read speak? And I, you know, it's that it's it's the majority of, of students, even if they've taken their own time um, to read it. And now with the graphic novel, which is so incredible. I love the graphic novel, and I was reluctant because I had loved the original yeah. uh, back when I read it. You know, when it was new, and um, uh, I. When I read the graphic novel, I was shocked at how it hit me with the same force and power, even though I knew the story. I think one of the um, one of the reasons I want to pull Shout, which we haven't talked about yet, which is Laurie House Anderson's memoir, um, written in verse, a book I just adored with all my heart. Mm. Um, it just came out, um, and. I think what's important is Lori House Anderson wrote um, Speak and sh- uh, without ever talking about herself. And it took her 20 years to come out and say, actually, that book was about my personal lived experience. And so I think it's a testament to the shame we carry when we are survivors mm-hmm. of sexual assault, um, the way that it it's not always, but for many people, it can be really hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, we grapple with it for years and years and years. And um, when the time was right, when Lori was ready to share this and to share her own personal experience through verse, and I think that's really powerful, right, for kids to see somebody sort of come out the other side and be willing to talk about it, um, to speak up, to shout yeah. about it uh-huh. uh, from this platform. But also there's a lot in here about um, healing, what it looks like to heal from mm. sexual assault, because Speak is really about the pain yes. of sexual assault. And in Shout, we really get to see Lori House Anderson share her, how she got through it in the long run. And so... I thought I'd just share one poem from this just gorgeous book. Um, This one's on page 24, and it's called Chum. And I think it's related to many of the conversations we've had. Underwater city, swimming pool, a shiver of slippery boys, 11, 12 years old, with shark-toothed fingers and gap-toothed smiles, isolate the open-hearted girls, eight, nine years old, tossed in like bloody buckets of chum. The boys circle, then frenzy feed, crotch grabbing, chest pinching, hate hate spitting, the water a froth with glee and destruction. Girls stay in the shallows after their baptism as bait. Mm. 
the first painful lesson in how lifeguards look the other way. This really resonated for me. I think um, Lori House Anderson and I are not the same age, but um, I am closer to her age than probably you are as sort of the culture that I grew up with of boys will be boys. Um, the culture in which there, when I was in middle school, I felt um, I lived really rurally and I felt very afraid of the young men in my um, community, in my rural community and it I went from a free whirling girl who went out on her bike or hiking in the woods with such great freedom in my body to being a little bit afraid and avoiding things that I used to do because I might run in to the neighborhood boys mm. who might ridicule me who might make me feel threatened and I don't know I don't know if there are pockets of that culture that still exist, but that poem brought all of those feelings, all mm. of those emotions, those remembrances of staying in the shallow end um, back for me and um, in such a real way. And so I, I just think that these, if I were to use this in the classroom, yeah. I would be tempted, if not to read the Olive Shout yeah. with students to at least isolate some poems to help um, complement speak. Yeah, you're inspiring me, and I will. You know? You're inspiring me. Uh. <laughs> We're having a little mutual appreciation going on here. <laughs> um, We're running out of time. Mm -hmm. I could talk to you for days. I agree. I wish I could. Y'all should see in Meg's classroom <laughs> is the most tremendous, wonderful picture of Lizzo. I'll share a photo. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Meg, before I just we wrap up? Thank you. This has been what an experience. Thanks for doing this work. Thanks for finding me on Twitter. Thanks to the Twitterverse. Yes. Right? Well, you're hard to miss on Twitter. <laughs> uh, thank you for all you're doing with students, for all the ways you're making me think, for all the resources you've shared. It's been such a delight. Um, I'm so excited about this episode. Thank you, Meg. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Meg Falby for appearing on the show and talking with me about both Speak, the graphic novel, and Speak, the original novel, uh, and also a little bit about Shout. Um, if you're looking for a copy of any of these books, check your local library. Big shout out to Audrey Hellman, our audio engineer and partner in podcasting. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit btedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at btedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.